Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Fountain Church Podcast. Our prayer is that God speaks to you in a real and powerful way. So go ahead, grab your Bible, grab a notepad and your coffee, and let's dive in. Uh, I want to speak to you today from the idea of hashtag blessed. Look at your neighbor and say hashtag blessed. We've been in a series entitled Masterpiece, talking about Jesus' Masterpiece Sermon, Sermon on the Mount. And I really believe God has a word for us in season. Would you pray with me? Father, we just thank you uh, that, Lord, nothing can stop the gospel. And, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. We pray, God, that you would come in a real way today. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see everything that you want to show us, everything you want to speak to us in Jesus' name. And everybody said. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen this house, but it's an upside down house, as you can tell. It's in Taiwan. It's in the city of Taipei. And it's become like a big tourist attraction. And it's a little bit interesting. Like somebody had this idea that I'm going to build an upside down house. But they didn't just build it upside down, then everything is normal inside. It actually is upside down inside. So the pictures, something's not wrong with the picture. Like, this is really what it looks like inside the house. Now, obviously, now it's become a tourist attraction. I don't think anybody's living in here. Uh, it would be a little bit strange. I mean, you have uh, the milk is sticking to the ceiling. And I remember looking at this, and there were several pictures, but I don't have time to show you. But it kind of messes with your head a little bit. Like, right, as you're looking at the image, you're looking, you're like, oh, uh, you're trying to make sense of it. It kind of makes you a little bit dizzy. And I think that's exactly how people felt when Jesus came on the scene and preaching this sermon on the mount. Because everything that he was saying seemed totally upside down. It seemed totally upside down and contradicted everything that culture said was the way to fulfillment. That everything that that society said was the way to real happiness. And so the big idea for this series, we talked about this last week, is that happiness is not found by pursuing something you think you need. It's pursuing Jesus and letting him form you into the person he's called you to become. So Jesus comes on the scene. Everybody's leaning in. The power of God is manifesting. The crowd is from all different types of uh, uh, regions, so different ideologies, religious views, the way that they saw the world. People from all over were leaning in to what Jesus was getting ready to say to them as he preached the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus began to proclaim this upside down kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is completely opposite from the world's kingdom. Uh, We're not really naturally inclined, I would propose to you, to move toward the kingdom of God. Because in our culture, in our world, there's just such a huge difference. In fact, I love... What Kenneth Baker said, he said, the good life usually involves upward mobility in the American dream, financial freedom, material abundance, and successful social status. If only we could get that better paycheck, that better house, a better car, the better retirement, the better social circle, then we could finally be happy. But here in Matthew, Jesus turns his definition of the good life upside down. The way Jesus is using it, he says the word, the word blessed means more than happy because happiness is an emotion often dependent on outward circumstances, but blessed here refers to the ultimate well-being and, distinctive, and the distinctive spiritual joy of those who share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. See, this is, this is how the world would look at this and say, hashtag blessed. 
Now, if you go on social media, you'll see on both followers of Jesus and uh, people that aren't following Jesus, that there's kind of this trend where, you know, you'll say something that happened in your life. Oh, the sun is shining. Everything is going great. Hashtag blessed. Like, oh, I got, I got a promotion. It's all good. Hashtag blessed. And like, that's great. Like, like, those, those are graces from God, free grace that we all get to experience. A beautiful day, you know, promotion. That's a great thing. I'm not, I'm not hating on that. I think, I think that's great. But I think we're also a little bit confused on what it means to truly be blessed. And so, so we see that this, this hashtag uh, blessed social media craze is really pointing out our culture's fascination with how, how when things turn out perfectly, how when things are easy and beautiful, that is a hashtag blessed. According to the theologian Bruno Mars, he says it this way, I'm a dangerous man with money in my pocket, so many pretty girls around me. We too fresh, gotta blame it on Jesus. Hashtag blessed, they ain't ready for me. And this is it. This is the epitome of our culture that, man, if, if, I, if I have all of this stuff, if I'm pursuing something that I think that I need, and if I get it, I'm gonna be happy. I'm gonna be hashtag blessed. But what we don't hear from Jesus' sermon of, is what blessing really looks like, what the blessed life, the good life really looks like. You don't hear people saying, hey, again, I feel really poor in spirit today. I'm, I'm, being, I'm so mindful of, oh, the gravity of my sin and destitution apart from God, hashtag blessed. Like, you, you, don't, you don't see, I've been mourning all day. Like, I'm just grieved over my sin, the world's sin, and just hashtag blessed. Man, I, I'm so, I feel so meek today. You know, I had to humble myself in front of all these rude people. Hashtag blessed. You know, I was persecuted for my faith today. It was amazing. They just went in on me. I was treated totally unjustly. Hashtag blessed. Like, like you, you just don't, you don't see that. Because a lot of times we don't equate those things with blessing. And Jesus is talking about two different kingdoms. He's talking about the kingdom of now and the eternal kingdom. Now, the kingdom of now pursues success, strength, money, power, status, comfort. And there's probably a lot of other things we could put. But the eternal kingdom is a little bit different. Jesus said, no, you're super blessed when you're weak, sacrificing, discomfort, grief, excluded, and weeping. And so you can already feel the tension in this. Like when we look at... at the, the now kingdom and the eternal kingdom, we feel the tension because most of us don't run to pursue these things. And it's not like Jesus is saying, oh, like, you know, I, I never, you know, success is bad, strength is bad, money, power, all, all of that's bad. It's just, no, Jesus is saying that, that shouldn't matter whether or not you're happy or not whether or not you're truly fulfilled. Like you can actually be weak, sacrifice, discomfort, greet, exclusion, weeping, and be totally fulfilled. And be totally blessed. But, but if the now kingdom is, is all, if, if the now kingdom is all that there is, then this makes sense. Like, go ahead and pursue your best life. Like, go ahead and build on status. The only problem is there's, there's going to be somebody out there, no matter what you achieve, that's going to beat you. If now is all there is, yeah, build your life on your beauty. But how many of you guys know, man, I'm 41. It starts to shift a little bit, right? Things start, start to change. Like all the people that recognize you and applaud you, one day you're not going to be relevant and they're going to go somewhere else. Are, are you with me on that? Now, now, now here's the deal. But if the eternal kingdom is real 
then even if you have all those things, there's going to be a cosmic emptiness. Even though your stomach's full, you're going to feel so empty. And you're going to feel, you're going to feel the gravity of that. That, man, there's got to be something more to life than this. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with success, strength, money, power, status, comfort. We should not be afraid of it, but we also should not be slaves to it. Like, for example, if, if you're on, it, on your job and you just know there's shady business going on, and maybe your upward supervisor said, hey, just don't say anything. We're just going to just, just, just keep it on the hush. And then your bigger boss comes and says, hey, what, what's going on with this? And you're like, oh. Because all of a sudden now you're tested. Do I really need that salary? Like, what about my family? Do I, I mean, it's, it's, what would I do if I didn't have a job, my comfort? I, I, there's no, I mean, success, I'm on my way to promotion. Like, I'm, I'm almost there, and man, I, I, like, I like the power that I have a little bit. I'm in charge of a lot of people. And so, so see, it's, it's in that moment that your risk level will help you to understand which kingdom you're really living in. Because when we're living in the kingdom of now, we will very rarely risk for the kingdom of God because we desperately need these things. These things are not sinful in and of themselves, but we were never meant to become slaves to them. Can I just tell you, if you're a slave to those things, you'll never enjoy them anyways because you're so dependent on them and they're constantly shifting, they're constantly changing. But listen to me, if Jesus is true, that if he really lived the life that he lived, which we know he did, he died on a cross, rose from the dead, which I don't have time to build that case, but he did everything that he said he was going to accomplish. And what does that mean? It means the now kingdom is coming to an end. Uh, for example, um, the now kingdom a lot of times would be tied to the kingdom of self. In Daniel chapter 5, there was a king by the name of Bel Belshazzar, and he was the last king of Babylon before Cyrus came to conquer. Well, he found out that Cyrus was coming, and he knew that they were just not going to overwhelm the Persians. And so what did he do? Rather than crying out to God, he said, no, let's live our best life. Throw a party. Matter of fact, go get all my concubines. Let's just go all out. Like, we're just, we're, we're just going to live our best life because we know it's going to end soon. And, and during this party, a hand appeared on the wall and began to write. And basically, what it said was, your days are numbered. And if Jesus is really who he says he is, which he is, the same writing's on the wall today. That in the last days, the Bible says that people uh, will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without God, having a form of godliness, yet denying his power. It says in the last days, it'll be like in the days of Noah, where people will be eating, drinking, and marrying, and sudden destruction will come upon the land. What, what, what I'm saying is this, is that if Jesus is really who he says he is, which it is, then the writing is on the wall. This self-built kingdom, this now kingdom, will eventually come to an end. And so the question is this, is a lot of times as followers of Jesus, like our goal is not to live according to the patterns of this world, but all of us do a little bit if we're honest. And we're all in this, this tension, and we feel it on a regular basis. And so how do, we, how do we really thrive in the kingdom of God? Like how do we not live according to the patterns of this world but really thrive in the kingdom of God. I love what Paul says in Colossians 3.1. He says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. 
See, the difference about the kingdom of God, the reason why it doesn't make sense a lot, is because we never equate mourning with joy. We never equate persecution with the best life. We don't equate being meek or hungering and thirsting for righteousness as something that's really going to produce a fulfillment. We don't see merciful. Like, we love to receive mercy, but we don't see being merciful where it really counts and when we're tested to people that don't deserve it and we're still called to give them mercy. We don't see or find that there's a possibility to really thrive in that place. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, no, no, in the kingdom of God, you can be poor and still thrive. Like, you can, you can mourn and still have joy at the very same time. You, you, you can be meek and still be totally confident and, and, and full of strength. You can be persecuted, yet not lose hope or faith. Like, you can experience these things at the very same time. But in, in the now kingdom, you can't. When you're mourning, it's like, if this is all there is, then... You have a right to mourn. If, if you're, you know, being taken advantage of or you're being meek or merciful or you're being persecuted, yeah, you have every right. Every right. If now is all there is, yes, that is devastating news. But Jesus is saying, no, you can experience both at the very same time in the kingdom of God. That's why, that's why the kingdom of God, the blessed life is not built around circumstances, it's not built on what's happening around you. It's built on something that transcends all of it. And Paul is saying, so what do we do? We need to set our sights on the reality of heaven. The, the, the now kingdom does not have a reality of heaven. Does not have a theology or a context of eternity. And so this is all that there is. Point in case, Acts chapter 7 Stephen is preaching the gospel full of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to religious leaders. And he is preaching truth. The boy is preaching fire. And they don't want to hear it. And so they pick up stones and began to throw stones at this man. And, and what happens? All of a sudden, in that moment, it said that Stephen intently looked up to heaven. What was he doing? He was setting his sights on the reality of heaven. And, and, and that word in the Greek, it literally means, it, 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 the, the word intent, it means to strain or to strive, to stretch. Like, I'm really, like, I, I mean, he's getting hit with rocks. They're, they're killing him. And it means to stretch, to strain, to strive, that there's a, the, this, this properly complete, fixed, fixated mindset looking up to the kingdom, fully occupied with this reality. And he says, in the middle of being hit with stones, suffering great pain, he says, I see the Lord. I see the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father. And so you see this beautiful picture of being persecuted, yet I'm so overwhelmed by the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the fulfillment of, of what's ahead. But that, that doesn't happen if our sights are not fixed on the reality of heaven. You see, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down, that you can't thrive in the kingdom of God when your sights are fixed on the kingdom of self. You just can't do that. It's, that doesn't work. But personal life change, because you might be asking, I don't want to live according to the now kingdom. I want to live according to God's kingdom. I, I really want to thrive there. Well, listen, personal change must be, personal life change must be initiated by personal heart change. We need a change of heart. And I want you to be hashtag blessed. 
It's just not what you think sometimes. It's not what I think sometimes. And can I just tell you as your pastor, I wish I could tell you that I always live in the eternal kingdom. But I don't. There's times where I find myself, even as I'm preparing this message, I'm like, have mercy on me, God. Sometimes you just don't realize how easily we get swept in to the pattern of now. And so, so what, do we, what do we do? Well, I, I want to I invite I want to invite you to, to have a change of heart today. I'm praying that God is going to speak to you in a, in a very real way. And it starts with realizing our poverty. Like we have to realize our spiritual poverty. I'm not talking about finances. I'm talking about spiritual poverty. Like that, that apart from God, we have nothing. Jesus explains it like this. In the very first beatitude, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit isn't a virtue to pursue. It's a condition to confess. Are you tracking with me? It's not like, okay, guys, let's try really, really hard to be poor in spirit. No, you and I already are poor in spirit. Many of us just haven't acknowledged it yet. It's, it's not a virtue to pursue. It's, it's a condition. It's apart from God, you and I are, are truly destitute. This word, it literally means this word poor. It means a beggar, not just like a little bit of poverty, but a beggar that has zero to their name, nothing to offer, completely dependent on the mercy of others. Just nothing. Just, 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 I got nothing to offer. And so, so poor in spirit is, is this, this confession, this reality that apart from Christ, we are deeply in debt before God. Like there's nothing in our ability that we can do to redeem ourselves, and we are bankrupt spiritually if it's not for Christ. Jesus said it this way, with me you can do all things, but apart from me, you can do nothing. It's, it's God's free gift of generosity to you and I at his infinite cost. And, and apart from this reality, we, uh, to be poor in spirit, it, it literally means that, that the, the only thing that has saved us is his grace, Nothing of our own works, nothing of our own merits, that the only way we're really going to live, we're really going to exist and become all that God has called us to be is if we realize this beautiful reality. That when we look at this beggar that's spiritually apart from Christ, this is our reality. But it's, it's not fun to look at. But it's when this reality begins to penetrate our heart all of the sudden the kingdom of God is at hand. When we start to realize this beautiful reality, I love how Paul says it in Ephesians. He says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, meaning our mind, will, and emotions that are subject to, to sin, this fleshly body that we still live in, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. I love what Ravi Zacharias says. He says, God didn't, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. He said, he made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And so that's why I remember reading a book called Absolute Surrender by Andrew Murray. This guy lived in like the, the late, I think, 1800s, early 1900s. And it was a little book called, uh, oh, it wasn't called Absolute Surrender. It was called Humility. And I just remember, I'll never forget one of the, the chapters in there. I, I read one line and he said, every time something bad happens to you or something that is like, it's bigger than you, something that, you know, is, is outside of your control or you find yourself in a situation where you have no power to fix, let God work humility into you in that moment. 
and it never left me. But, but it's way easier for me to preach than it is to live in those moments. Sometimes, like Stephen, it's a stretch and a strain to get our eyes fixed on the realities of heaven. But it's in that place when, when we find ourselves in, in a place that we can't fix, something that's just far beyond us, that the Lord in those places, he may not have created that place, but he can use that place um, to allow his kingdom to penetrate our hearts in an incredible way. I, I think the challenge for us, though, is what Tim Keller says. He says this, he says, but many people today resist Jesus' teaching on our spiritual poverty. On contrary, you believe that God owes you some things, right? Like, oh, I'm kind of a good dude. Like, you, you don't owe me a lot, God, but just a little bit. He ought to answer my prayers and bless you for the many good things you've done. Even though, even though the Bible does not use the term, by inference, we can say that you are middle class in spirit. You feel that you've earned a certain standing with God through your hard work. So you may also believe that the success and the resource you have are primarily due to your own industry and energy. And this is, this is where many times we don't realize this, but and we would not just come out and say, oh, God, you owe me something. But let me tell you how it normally manifests in my life. You know, as a pastor that has laid down a lot for the gospel, it would look something like this in my prayer time. God. I've given up so much for you. Couldn't you just give me this one thing? Like, you couldn't even make that work. <laughs> Middle class spirit. Forgetting that, man, uh, apart from him, I deserve wrath. He really owes me nothing. But in his love, in his mercy, and his grace, Paul's like, God is so for you. Like, God is not this, this mean God that's just, no, he made a way because of his love, mercy, and grace for us. But that middle-class spirit wants to come out all the time. Yeah. Just, you just, I know I, I don't, but you just, just a little bit. Just make it work once. Or that elite spirit. Do you know what I mean? See, with middle-class and elite, it even affects the way we treat others because we're like, people start to annoy you a lot more. Like, how come you can't figure this out? Like, can't you get over this already? Put your faith in God. Yeah. Crying out loud. Right? <laughs> and that's why Jesus says, listen, that's why the, the, in the New Testament it says, be merciful to those who doubt. But that middle class spirit, you're like, man, you better pick yourself up and figure it out. Get in your Bible or something. And so it's, it's kind of, it sets this entitlement on the inside of us. And then the elite spirit, nobody would ever say, I'm elite and want to be my own God, but we manifest it by saying, I will never admit I'm poverty in spirit. No way. And nobody else may know that, but you and God do. Like, no way. And it, in effect, it affects the way we treat other people on multiple levels. I remember when I was on the side of the road, ran out of gas with my three kids, do you know how many cars passed me by? Thousands. Now, I know I was being an irresponsible dad. I, I thought I could make it, but I, I didn't. It's Jackie's fault. She left me on empty. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. It's a serious message. I got to make sure you're, you're still with me. Um, but, but when this guy stopped, finally one guy stopped, and I said, listen, sir, can I just use your phone? But it took a lot. I mean, I'm pulling my kids out of the car. Right, like cry, just look sad as I'm trying to wave people down. And this guy finally stopped. I used his phone. I was so grateful. Can I just tell you that because he met me in my place of destitution, if that's even a word, when I was destitute, it changes how I stop for people. Like now sometimes we'll get off, if we see somebody on the other side of the freeway, we'll get off the exit and drive back a couple miles just to see if they're okay. Because I know how that, I know 
how that feels. The other day, I pulled off on the side of the road and a guy ran his car off the road, he was drunk. And so it was cars in between the, the freeway, kind of on that little hillside, you know, where the on-ramp is. And so, I, and he's sitting by his car, so I'm like, hey dude, are you all right? What's going on, like what happened? And I could tell right away, he's like, man, I've been golfing all day, I've been drinking. I said, listen, sit down. I said, I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, man, you're a, you're a pastor? Like, <laughs> like, like, I just know. It's like, like I'm an angel or something. It's like, no, I'm far from an angel, bro, but I am going to pray for you, and I'm going to wait till we get you some help. And I, I just know what it feels like to be in that space. To the degree that we can see Jesus took our place, it will radically change that middle-class spirit. I, I remember uh, a couple weeks ago, we went uh, hiking at Mount Diablo, and uh, here's me at the top of, of this boulder. Now, it doesn't look like that big here, but when you're up there, it's pretty high. And I remember looking at my kids, I got one hand, I'm going to climb this thing with one hand, let's go. And, and there's even little steps that climb up that are like embedded into the rock. So I'm like, look at me, go. And then I get to the top, and it's, it's, pretty, it's a little bit thinner up there, and I can't around. I'm, I'm terrified. And I'm not even scared of heights, but I get this like sinking feeling on the inside of me. I'm looking down. I'm like, I got one hand. I'm like, Jack, I don't think I could turn around. She's like, just sit down and turn around, right? Like, <laughs> and so, so finally I get the courage and I do that and I sit there and, and, and you just feel like at one moment I was so confident and haughty and the next moment I'm just feeling the gravity of my finite, weak, little, frail body. And I think, I, I think it's, it's so huge because it's, it's very easy to compare ourselves to other people. It's so easy to keep our eyes focused on ourselves. But when God becomes the standard for morality in our life, it, you'll be like me on this rock. You may feel really confident comparing yourself to, to, to Joe. No, no, Joe, where's Joe? Not that Joe. Or, or you know, because a lot of times when we compare ourselves, we don't find that person that's super spiritual and loves Jesus and compare ourselves to them. Isn't that funny? Because that just makes us feel convicted, right? You think about, oh, like, you know, Susie, and she's just, I mean, my, my Lord, she spends like 20 hours in prayer a day. She reads the Bible. I mean, her prayers sound like they're from heaven itself. We don't compare ourselves to that person when we're trying to justify ourselves before God. We, we find somebody that's just messing up. I, I want to find the guy that's messing up all the time. Just be like, Lord, thank you. I know that I'm doing good. I'm doing better. But when we compare ourselves to God, all of us feel the gravity of his vastness and our finiteness. And all of a sudden, it, that poverty of spirit is able to creep in there really, really quickly. We've got to fix our eyes on the Lord and let the spirit of God encourage humility. The second thing we need to do is we need to repent from our pride. Like once, once we see that reality, we need to starve the flesh. Because our flesh just wants to feed on a bunch of stuff. Our, want, our mind, will, and emotions that are subject to sin as we still live in this body, we just gravitate towards these comforts. And I got, oh, just, I really need just to feel a little bit successful. I got to, you know, put this person down. I need to feel a little bit better about myself. And pride is the enemy of the kingdom. Like, we, 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 like this is, this, pride is not a good thing. That's why it's the first beatitude. Because if, if humility is not the foundation, you might as well forget the rest of them. If we don't see our desperate need for God, uh, Dr. Derwin Gray says it like this, that pride is the mother of all sin because it gives birth to every other sin. And so I'm just telling you, pride comes, Scripture says, before the fall. Uh, many of you guys uh, remember a story that I told a while back. Uh, we were at my house, and, uh, and I have an incredible father-in-law. He is sitting in the service. I love my father-in-law. 
But when I first met him, it was, uh, it was like the, the, the father-in-law that you're so grateful you have, but you're also like, are you serious, God? Like, he knows everything. <laughs> super smart. I'm scoring points, Dad. Super smart. But, but in all seriousness, the guy can build a house, and then he can tell you the, the subspecies of a beetle in the ground. And it's like, I, there's no way I can compete with this guy. And, and I, I remember we were in it at, at our house, Jackie and I, we'd been married for a while now. We just had Olivia, and I put this swing up in our garage, bolted it to the ceiling. I am not a builder. Uh, I, I can YouTube stuff a little bit and tinker and figure stuff out. And so he comes over and he says, hey, hey, Matt, man, I, I don't think that's safe, dude. I was like, what do you mean? It's perfectly fine. She's been swinging in it all week. He's like, no, I just don't think it's safe. And, and I, I just feel, if I'm just being honest, I'm like, no, like, you're not going to get me on this one. Like, this, this one, you get me on all of them, not this one. I did this right. And so sure enough, man, I grab a hold of that thing. I said, let me show you how good this is. I grab a hold of the ropes, and I swing, and I pops, pulls right out of the ceiling, fall on my backside, knock over my daughter. She hits her head. And then I'm super embarrassed, so I grab her like I'm concerned with her, run upstairs, but really I'm just trying to get out of that environment because I'm so (laughs) humiliated. And what I was basically saying is, listen, he knows what he's talking about. Like, he's that guy. If you want, if you need, you know, to figure out how to build something or if something's going to work or not work, he's that guy. So rather than just saying, okay, well, tell me more. Teach me more. What did I do wrong? What should I do? I said, oh, I got this. I got this. It reminds me of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 and 15, how, how you are fallen, how you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. Um, speaking of, uh, of the king of Babylon, many scholars also believe that it's giving reference to Satan or potentially the Antichrist to come. He says this, you can see the prideful spirit here. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will proceed on the mountains of the gods far away from the north. I will climb to the highest of heavens and be like the most high. Instead, the Lord says, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. And that's really just that, that, that I got this. And even though God is like, understands all things. He's the creator of all things, infinitely wise. We're like, still, no, God, I, I got this. Like, I, I'm going to ascend. I'm going to preside. I'm going to climb. And we don't say this outright, like, hey, take that, God. But when we live, we show with our, our lives sometimes that, man, we, we just really, we think we got this. And in regards to pride, God is not excited about pride. In fact, it says in Psalm 138.6, it says that he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. That just breaks my heart. A lot of times when we see this, I think sometimes we may think about this passage a little bit wrong. I think there's a duality to it. It's not just that like God detests it because it's sin, but I think also, man, it keeps us from him when he wants to be close. Like God longs to be close with us. And pride keeps him at a distance. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Like God is not a fan of pride. Pride is an enemy to the kingdom of God. Where, where pride is, James says it even better. Pride says, he says this, but if you are bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. 
For jealousy and selfishness are not the kind of God's, it's not God's kind of wisdom. Like some of us, we know how to spin it. We know how to manipulate it. We know how to get around. Like we're good at that stuff. But he's like, no, no, that's not the wisdom of God. He says, such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, this kingdom of self, this now kingdom, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind, no matter how pretty it looks. King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, King David was, you know, a man after God's own heart, but he got caught up in the now kingdom and he began to lose sight of all that God had done for him. He began to lose sight that apart from God, he was just a poor shepherd boy. And, and it, was, it was a moment where he should have been off to war. He stayed back. He saw a woman bathing, and uh, her name happened to be Bathsheba. Are you with me? And, uh, and so he saw her bathing, and she was a wife of one of his best men, had him killed, slept with her, had a baby, and tried to move on like nothing ever happened. And so, so the prophet Nathan comes to him one time, and many of you know the story. If you don't, prophet Nathan comes and just says, hey, there was this guy, I'm going to paraphrase. You know, there was this, this guy who was super wealthy and had, had tons of sheep. But then there was this one guy who had one, and that guy that had everything took that one from him. And David was like, what? Look what David said. David said, surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Can I just tell you that we can have a righteous indignation toward the things of God yet still be highly hypocritical? That we can have a righteous indignation for the truth, for God's word, for what's right, and still be a religious hypocrite, failing to see that we are blinded by our own pride. Isn't that crazy? I'll I, I tell you what, man, I used to, back in the day, if somebody would preach false doctrine, I used to just rip them. I don't do that anymore. Because I'm like, man, I, I'm going to come against your doctrine, but I'm going to be careful not to curse you that in my arrogance, I might not fall into the same temptation as you. But Mather, I, I want to pray for you. I want, I want to extend, you know, truth and grace. There's got to be both. One without the other is evil, wicked, and mean. You've got to have both truth and grace. And so uh, Luke chapter 15, uh, the parable of the two lost sons. One was lost outside living wild. One was lost inside of the house, knew the father's house very well, but just as lost, blinded by his pride and hypocrisy. And so, so all I'm saying is this, we got to be on guard. Like we have to be on guard from some of these things, right? Let me give you a, a list of pride. Let's see, see how you're doing. Uh, not wanting to talk with someone or spend time with them because they don't measure up. They just annoy you. People are annoying. <laughs> you ever, like, have you ever figured that out sometimes? Like, and God says, bear up with them. You don't want to know what will make you, will, will challenge your pride to the ump degree is community. Because what, what, what do we have to do? Thinking they, should, thinking they should have asked me to do that, I would have done it better. Anybody wrestle with that at all? Uh, waiting your turn in conversation to highlight something you've done. I hurry up. You're not even thinking about what they're saying. You're just like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to get to my point. Hearing a good report from somebody else's life threatens your worth. Hearing about another person's problems and feelings uh, or, and feeling better about yourself. You know, you're like, oh, you're struggling. Praise the Lord. I'm just <laughs> feeling so good right now. And we've all done that. Um, trying to serve, oh, this is, this is, hold on, lean into this one. Trying to serve God without prayer. Whoa. Thinking that pride is not that big of a problem for you 
Anybody, some of you sitting right here, ladies, you're like, man, my, this is for my husband right now. <laughs> my husband needs to hear this. Uh, not confessing sin to God or saying sorry to someone unless you're backed into a corner. If you are slow to forgive and you got to be pushed into a corner, like, fun, sorry. <laughs> like invite Jesus into that space. Pride looks down on others. Pride does not listen well. Pride is stubborn. Pride is not eager to learn because it's confident in what it already knows. Like, oh my goodness. That's why we have a value. We're flexible, teachable, and grateful. Hashtag the apron. We just keep going. Pride is not quick to admit wrong because it fears that it may look bad or lose position. Pride is competitive and easily threatened. There's nothing wrong with healthy competition, but you know what I'm talking about. Pride is insecure. You know, insecurity is one of the highest forms of pride. Because it's consumed with self. Man, and I think we've all have wrestled there at some level. Pride finds it hard to rejoice in the success of others. You ever hear somebody else is just winning and you're losing and you're just like, they're hashtag blessed and I'm not. Like, just be quiet. I don't even want to hear it anymore. Good for you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, like we, all, we all know this. And so, so rather than looking for praise, rather than looking for compliments, rather than, you know, looking for popularity, we just need to be cautious. We need to be cautious of some of these things. But however, let me just tell you this. We can't make it an issue to avoid praise and recognition. It's not, that's not sin. You can actually exemplify pride when somebody gives you praise and recognition and you're like, oh, it's, it's all the Lord. When in reality in your heart, you're like, oh, just give it to me. See, see the, 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 the sin isn't in somebody giving you praise or recognition. The sin is you needing it, loathing it, glorifying it, and seeking it for, for a sense of fulfillment. So be afraid of money, power, success. Man, God's going to, I pray that your life is full of influence. Daniel was full of influence. He just didn't compromise. And when it came down to losing it all, he said, sign me up. I don't need it. I'm living in the kingdom. I don't need this. If I get it and God, God allows me to, to have money, power, success, fame, popularity, I'm just going to steward it his, for his glory. But if it comes down to the kingdom or this, I'm not living for it. I'm free. I'm fulfilled. Either way, that is kingdom living. So David comes to his senses and look what he says. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash all my iniquity away and cleanse me from my sin. What David did is he got his eyes off the kingdom of self, off the now kingdom, and back onto the Lord. He fixed his gaze back onto the realities of heaven. O God, I see it. I see my pride. I see my arrogance. And he repents. And then a few uh, verses down, he says this, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would have brought it. Like, I'm the king. I have ever, what, what do you need, God? Want a sacrifice from me? What do I have to offer you? He says, you don't want that. Nope, you didn't take pleasure in any of my burnt offerings. He said, my sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit. And a broken and contrite heart, God, you will never turn away. And everybody that God has used incredibly in Scripture some of them were greatly successful. Some of them were not successful at all. But there was one common thread is they all had a broken spirit before God. They all recognized their poverty. From Moses saying, God, man, I, I'm super educated, but I'm not your guy. I mean, I'm not trying to have a false humility. I just, could you really use me in this space? And God said, yeah, with, with me, man, I, you're going to do some great things. You know, Gideon, the same way. King David was a shepherd boy that God called to the forefront, David just, the thing about David is even when he blew it, he just was so quick to correct back. Because we're gonna blow it, man. As your pastor, 
oh man, there's times where I just jump to the now kingdom. And I got to get back to, oh God. You know, he used tax collectors who were rich. Paul was super educated, but look at Paul, super educated. He says, Lord, I'm the chief of sinners, broken and contrite spirit. I love how Paul describes the beautiful reality of the kingdom. He says this, we faithfully preach truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored even though we're well known. We live close to death, but we're still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Uh, Our hearts ache, right? Our hearts mourn, but we always have joy. Do, do Do you see the picture of the kingdom? My heart aches. Oh, but I'm so full of joy still. I'm not living in the now kingdom. My eyes are set on heavenly places. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. Look at look what he says. I own nothing, and yet we have everything. That's kingdom living. What Paul is saying, it doesn't matter. Either way, we're good. Our eyes are set on the realities of heaven, where we're we're starving the flesh, and we're, we're, we're asking the Lord in those moments like David, Lord, God, search my heart. Expose this thing. When God exposes our heart, it's a gift from him. It really is. Uh, Benedict's Ladder of Humility, uh, St. Benedict has this whole like breakdown on what they call the Ladder of Humility. And this is kind of a paraphrased version, but I thought it was, it was interesting. It says, it starts with the fear of God and mindfulness of him, setting our sights on the realities of heaven. And from that place, doing God's will and not your own or other people, willing to subject ourselves to the direction of others, even when they're difficult and painful. Like I said, you want to know what will really help you grow in your faith is community. Because there's difficult people, patience to accept the difficulty in others, radical honesty about your own weakness and faults. One of the things you're going to find here is that when you're always bragging about your strength, people see right through that. When you start opening up to your faults, people can identify with that. And they'll identify with your weaknesses far more than your strengths. Deeply aware of being the chief of sinners, speaking less and being transformed into the love of God. But it all starts with the fear of God and a mindfulness of him. There was a, a gentleman in, in uh, Egypt. His name was Ferrat. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. But he lost an $11,000 watch and a garbage man showed up at his door one day with this watch. And he said, sir, I think this belongs to you. This man was extremely poor. He said, why would you, why would you do this? He says, well, my Christ tells me, tells me to be honest in all that I do. And this is your watch. And I'm going to honor him with that. And so he's like, man, I'm not a follower of Christ, but I, I see him in you. He's like, you're giving me back an 11. This could change your life. And so he began to seek the Lord. God began to radically transform him and his wife. And, uh, and there came a moment where he went out to where this garbage man lived, and he lives next to a garbage dump of thousands upon thousands of people rummaging through piles of garbage. And Pharaoh, he said he found himself reflecting on the words of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He also remembered the words of the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, that we have become as the scum of the world, the dreg of all things. It was soon thereafter that Pharaoh and his wife began ministering to people's spiritual and material needs. They preached the gospel throughout Egypt and thousands of people turned to Christ. In 1978, Pharaoh was ordained by the Coptic Orthodox Church 
and now about 10,000 believers meet in a large cave outside of the garbage village. It is the largest church of believers in the Middle East. In May of 2005, a day of prayer held for Muslims to turn to Christ. More than 20,000 Arab Christians gathered. The event was broadcast on Christian satellite TV where millions of people were watching. All of this because one garbage man chose to humbly return a watch that would have made him the richest man in town. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if we just start to walk and live this out? Like to realize our, our, that we are poor in spirit, that apart from Christ, in Christ, man, we can do all things, but apart from him, we can do nothing. How would that, how, how would this, this understanding of that and the repent, repentance of our pride dramatically change our homes? How would they dramatically shift our marriages, the way that we engage the world? Who would have known just that one simple act of obedience would change millions of people's lives for all eternity? And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to to really grab a hold of this truth. Help us to ponder on this beautiful reality. That poor in spirit doesn't mean we walk around, no, all Igor-ish. No, it it means we fully know who we are. We're confident. It's it's like we're infinitely humbled, yet we know we're infinitely loved. We're, We're infinitely weak, but we know we're infinitely strong. Because of all that you've done, you've, you took our place. And because you took our place, because you met us in our place of des- being destitute, God, I pray that that would radically transform our hearts and how we see and engage the rest of the world, starting with us, starting with our homes, starting with our church, that we would be a community that would bear with one another in humility, God, and expose the arrogance in our heart. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us here at Fountain Church. For more details on how to get connected, visit us at fountainchurch.cc. We're also on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll see you next time.